story of Easter is actually quite confusing. But to those who've been given a lens and perhaps a story in which to couch the context of this event, it's life and love and freedom. Uh, my name's Alex, I'm the pastor here, and it's so nice to spend Friday afternoon with each of you. I uh, just want to let you know that we're doing the same thing at 4pm on Easter Sunday, and so if you're with us, we'd love to just invite you to that. I hear on the grapevine there'll be a sausage sizzle, and uh, so look, Aussies already go to Bunnings on a Sunday to get their sausage sizzle. Hey, just delay it a few hours, come join us, 4pm, it'll be a really good time, looking forward to it. And uh, this afternoon, we want to unpack Good Friday. <clears throat> We want to look at the person of Jesus and sort of unashamedly, without apology, like apology, just look at this man and this story and perhaps be changed and reshaped by it. So to do that, I actually just want to start by reading the scriptures. Uh, you saw one of the verses that we'll be diving into uh, pop up on the screen um, before, but um, this text, it sort of needs no introduction. The Apostle Paul wrote it, and you could sort of read this text out of context if you want to, which I make a habit of not doing, but you could read it, and it would just speak to you, because it's so plain, it's so clear, and it captures the very heart of the reason behind the story and the events of Easter. So Romans 5, verses 6 to 8 says this, you see... At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. But for a good person, someone might possibly, I love that, might possibly, but probably won't, might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, verses 6 to 8. One of the things I've grown quite fond of as I've become an adult, which I'm still lagging behind a bit, I'll admit, is um, just noticing the funny things that adults say to one another in conversation. We've got these lines that we whip out to comfort one another. Uh, this became clear to me when um, I've got a bit of a sob story coming up. Um, last year, my bike was stolen. Some of you know this. It was stolen from our garage. What we thought was a locked up safe shed turned out to be a perfect prime place for someone to steal my bike from. And I noticed my bike was stolen one morning and uh, people asked me, you know, did you talk to the police? Did they follow it up? And you know, I won't answer that question here. But my bike's gone, don't have it. And their way of comforting me, they, they said this. Um, they just said, oh, it's just one of those things, isn't it? <laughs> and like, it made me think, what do we mean when we use that, right? Like, the assumption is that there's this, like, bucket of things over here that, like, suck in life, and that if something happens over here, all you need to say to comfort someone is, oh, it's just one of those things. It's all good. <laughs> what do we mean, right? We say really funny things as adults. Um, we've even got our own proverbs, you know, our own sort of maxims, and one of the maxims that I've become quite fond of, that's not so funny, it's actually true, it's, I think it's an Australian proverb, it's actions speak louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. I've been married for five years and it's been a crash course in realizing that actions speak louder than words. Uh, my wife, Kath, and I, we, um, and that's a reflection on, on, um, on her. No, no, just kidding. Um, we've been doing the Alpha Marriage course at Rabina recently. 
And uh, it's not that our marriage is in crisis or anything like that. We were just like, man, we just want to invest in our marriage a bit. And so we've taken some time out and we've done eight weeks of a course. And it gives you a real moment just rhythmically each week to reflect on your marriage. And one thing you realize if you reflect on your marriage through some kind of intentional counseling or program or resource is that, oh man, marriage is actions, right? And actions speak louder than words. Now, you might be thinking, we came to a Good Friday service. Alex, what are you talking about? This is not the place to debrief alpha marriage. I've got a point. And my point is this, that the Apostle Paul would have us ask this question, how do we know what God's love is? And he would say actions speak louder than words. That if we want to know the Easter story, if we want to know what Good Friday means, and if we want to understand the central hinge upon which the Christian story opens and shuts, it's this. Look at the actions of God in Jesus Christ. Do you know the action of God in Jesus Christ? Because Paul would argue that's the very place from which we understand the love of God. Now, I said before, we celebrate Easter today and on Sunday. And usually Easter, Good Friday, it's a bit of a somber moment, you know? We want to inhabit the church calendar well and feel the weight of this day. But I felt just pressed by God just to talk about the benefit of Good Friday this afternoon, to talk about all that God has accomplished and made available in and through the person of Jesus. So I just want to be unashamed about that. Maybe next year it'll be a bit more somber, but there's going to be an element of celebration this afternoon. I just hope that's okay, just to put that out front. But I think we get confused about Easter because, honestly, we're confused about the person of Jesus, right? You might be here for the first time, you've got no Christian framework, and you're like, man, Jesus was a great guy. I think he was a good moral teacher. I think the sort of average Aussie interpretation of Jesus is this. He probably lived, and he's really great. That's what the average Aussie thinks about Jesus, I think. A couple of years ago, um, 60 Minutes interviewed Ricky Gervais, the atheist uh, comedian from the UK. And uh, they asked him about his lack of faith, why he was an atheist, and what his impression of Jesus was. And he just, like, he captured it so well. It's the typical impression of Jesus. He said, I really love Jesus. Jesus was a really good guy. He was really kind, really nice. Um, In fact, Gervais would say, oh, I thought of Jesus like a bit of a superhero, you know? And he'd he'd add to that this sense that, you know, he had a middle-class mother, she was working, I think she was single, and he'd say, it's actually a great idea for the church to come up with this idea of Jesus as divine, as God, because it's sort of like an extra babysitter when my mum's busy, you know? My mum would say, this is Ricky Gervais speaking, my mum would say, oh, like, Ricky, you know, I can't be in the room to watch you, but God, he's watching you. (laughs) Great babysitter, well done, church, great idea. But most of us, we're confused about Easter. Is it just history? Or is there relevance? Does it speak to us? We don't know what Easter means. I've got the word Easter in different languages underneath there, just so you can get a sense that actually our English word for Easter, it's a bit different from the word that other cultures use for Easter. The word that other cultures use for Easter is actually more similar to the original Hebrew term from which this celebration comes. And the original Hebrew term is Pesach. And uh, all the Hebrew scholars in the room can shoot me down later if I've butchered that. But... It's actually the celebration of Passover, which is this Hebrew festival which celebrates the giving of a lamb sacrificed on behalf of the sins of people. And it's this context out of which the Christian story and Easter in particular comes. But here's Paul's point. For all of those like myself who grew up maybe confused about Easter, Paul's point is this, that Easter is God's love on display. That's what Easter is. It's God's demonstration of his love. And Paul's more particular point in verse 8, I'll read it in a moment, is this, that God displayed his love 
by dying on a cross. Verse 8, it'll be on the screen. Let me read it to you here. It says this, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, one of the things I've acknowledged is that every major worldview in you know, the world or every major movement has a central symbol. Uh, you think of the lotus flower. Historically, it, was, it belonged to the, the, um, the Chinese, uh, but the lotus flower has been adopted by Buddhism, and it's the central symbol around which Buddhism operates, such that if you were to see the symbol, you think of Buddhism and all that Buddhism represents. Likewise, if I was to show you a picture of a hammer and a sickle, you might think of 1917, the Eastern Soviet bloc, and how the Soviet Union uh, represented itself by this symbol. And what they were doing was this. Whenever someone uses a symbol, here's what they're doing. They're saying, when you see this, this is the center of what you should think about our movement. When you see this, this is the center of what you should think about our movement. If I was to ask you, if you knew the whole Christian story from beginning to end, that God creates, that humans sin, that God chases after them, that God puts himself in flesh in the person of Jesus, lives a life that we couldn't live, dies a death that we deserve, gets buried, is raised again to new life, sends his Holy Spirit, burrs the church, and then says that one day he'll come back and return, what symbol would you use to capture the heart of the Christian story? Paul looks to the cross. This barbaric, torturous, moment of death. Paul looks to the cross, and the question we want to ask is why? And there's two quick answers I want to give with the time I've got left. Because it deals with our sin, and it demonstrates God's love. It deals with our sin, and it demonstrates God's love. Let me read verse 7, dealing with, sorry, verse 6, dealing with our sin. Paul says this, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, when I read that language, there's two things that I'd hope you'd feel. On one sense, I'd want you to feel liberated, and I'll explain why that's possible in a moment. Another thing you might feel, and I felt this, and I continue to feel this, but it's also beautiful, is this, that you might feel offended to be labeled in such a way. But I hope to explain it in such a way that it also liberates you. So, powerless, that's the word that Paul uses. One of the key affirmations of the Christian story is that humanity is powerless to save themselves. Now, different worldviews will diagnose the human problem differently. Not a shock there. But some will say that humanity is basically good. And all we need to do is be given the right education, or the right rules, or the right thought processes, or the right experiences, and we can climb our way back to redemption. That's what different worldviews say. But the Christian worldview, it inverts that, makes it way more beautiful and a bit more of a critique all at the same time. Um, recently, the floods happened in Brisbane. Not sure if you know that. And um, I was, uh, we had small group leaders at our place, host, um, sort of run by Lauren, on Wednesday night. And I was chatting with some guys around um, the story of the houseboat that went under. Anyone see this? The houseboat that literally hit the, uh, the pontoon ferry and went under. Uh, but the scary thing about this story is there was a guy on the pontoon, on the um, houseboat. So the, the houseboat's rolling along and everyone's watching and classic like Aussies just witnessing, being like, what's going to happen? And everyone's like, jump off, jump off. And bang, hits the ferry terminal. Houseboat goes under, torrential water streams through, and everyone's like, where's the guy? Now, if you find yourself drowning, or you find yourself underwater, or you find yourself struggling, here's what you are, you're powerless. Unless someone comes out to save you, and luckily someone did in this case. But that sense of powerlessness, that sense of inability, that sense that, oh, I don't just need to fix myself, change myself, redeem myself, earn my way. It, 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 it's, bit, it's a bit more pessimistic than that. 
The scriptures would say, no, we're powerless to save ourselves. We need someone to rescue us. The Christian story simply begins with two key affirmations, that God made us good, but we turned in on ourselves. We chose ourselves. We defined right and wrong for ourselves. We sinned. We rebelled. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he would use this Latin phrase. Uh, I wrote it down because I knew I wouldn't remember it. Here we go. He says, in, in curvitus in se, which means it's curved in on ourselves. We feel that. And if you don't feel it for yourself, you've seen it in others. It's the human condition. And um, the point of the Christian story is that God meets us exactly in that place. While we're powerless, while we're unable, while we can't pick ourselves up by our own moral bootstraps, God steps in, meets us where we're at, redeems us as we are, and sets us on a journey. The image of him is the one to which we're orientated to become. Here's the point I want to make in this. The one that's freeing, and the one that might be a little bit offensive. The freeing thought is this, that this is what sets Christianity apart from every other worldview. See, different worldviews will say, all you need to do is have the right experience, and then you'll be able to make your way to nirvana or enlightenment or X, Y, and Z. Have the right experience. Other worldviews will say, you need to do the right behaviors, exhibit the right actions, in other words, get a nice list of rules and sort of this particular worldview comes out of the Middle East, get the, the right list of rules and you'll be able to live the life that you're meant to live in order to be approved and accepted by God. Or if you can't live it perfectly, just try and balance it out. You know, I do more good than bad, so I'm sweet. Very exhausting lifestyle. Other worldviews will say, no, you just need to think the right thoughts. You just need to tick off the mental boxes and get your, get your mind in order. Now, here's what I want to say. Being a Christian involves right experiences. It involves right thoughts, and it involves right actions. But here's the thing that a Christian knows. That does not earn God's love. That's what a Christian knows. We don't have vocabulary for that. We don't have vocabulary for understanding what it means to earn anything from the God who exhibited himself as, as love on the cross. We don't know what that means, not in the Christian worldview. And that's the key difference. You don't need to think the right thoughts, do the right actions, or believe the right things as an end in themselves to earn God's love. They come. Imagine encountering the living God. They definitely come. But that doesn't earn anything. Not in the Christian worldview. And so why is this liberating? It's liberating because everyone in this room can respond to that invitation. You don't need to be anything special. You don't need to be a moral superstar or an intellectual heavyweight or someone who's got this weird background of experiences as much as they can be good. You don't need to be anything special. You just need to come as you are. Here's the offensive part, though. It means you can't boast right? If you're helpless, powerless, sinful, rebellious, what, what does that mean if God reaches out to you? You've got nothing to do with it. Now, I realize I've actually grown quite fond of boasting in my life, um, and I've realized this in marriage. Um, recently, I've sort of noticed that Kath will come home from a day of work or day out, and I'll start telling her all the chores I've done that day. Does anyone else do this? You don't actually have to show, but confess your sins, it's fine. Um, I'll start listing them out, like, hey, babe, I did the dishes, and hey, I cleaned out the sink, and I vacuumed the floors, and I mopped them, and I did the, the clothes, and what am I doing when I'm saying this? I'm actually asking, what are you going to do? <laughs> right? I'm banking up my earnings, I'm banking up my merit, and I'm taking that as something by which to say, so, like, let's, should we break even here, or, like, is this a, you know? I'm boasting. And the song that we sang at the start, I was meditating on it before, and someone called me, and they're like, did I interrupt you? And I was like, yeah, I was literally bawling my eyes out listening to this song, because actually, when you're a Christian, you can't boast in squat. 
And a lot of you might be sitting here thinking, man, this is a great sermon for my non-Christian friend to hear that I invite along today. No, I'm speaking to each of us. We might have forgotten this. One hymn writer put it like this, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Let me read the lyrics of How Deep the Father's Love and see how it captures everything I'm saying for us. My last point's a bit shorter, which makes sense of the time I've got left. How deep the Father's love for us. Maybe just close your eyes as I read this out over us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. I'm not done. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life, and I know that it's finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. What should I gain from his reward? I can't give a flippant answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Do you know this Good Friday? Do you know this part of the story? It's the central thing around which the Christian story orbits. It's the hinge on which history opens and shuts. It's the center of life and it's the beginning of a new one. This is how God demonstrates his love by dealing with our sin. But that's not all. Let me read verse 7. Paul would say, verse 7 and 8. I'll try and shorten this a little bit. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. One of the fascinating things about this passage is it sort of uses a human argument by which to invite us as readers to think through how we judge people, right? Oh, this is what humans do. We, like we think that bad people aren't worth much, so we wouldn't die for them. And we think that good people, are, they're worth a bit more because we live by like a performance-based culture, so we should think a bit higher about them. But God doesn't look at us any differently. He says all humans are on the same fundamental ground. And that's why what comes next is so radical. God demonstrates his love for us like this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, what does this mean? It means you can't earn it. You can't merit it. You can't perform your way to being accepted by God. You're just accepted as you are, and he does the life-changing. That's the story of the cross. A few years ago, my wife and I got really into watching um, the Sherlock Holmes BBC series. Has anyone watched that? Good times. Yep, such a good series. And uh, there's this moment in the series, there's three characters you need to have in your mind as I unpack this illustration. There's Sherlock Holmes, no-brainer. There's John Watson, his trusty sidekick. And there's John Watson's wife, Mary. Now, it turns out that Mary's got a bit of a checkered past that Sherlock and John have no idea about. Spoiler alert, there it is. Um, Mary was a spy in her previous life before marrying John. And it turns out that her, her past is trying to catch up with her. And in that moment, people are trying to kill Mary and take her over and all this kind of stuff. And Sherlock swears to them and to himself that he's going to protect Mary and John. 
And so eventually, the people that are coming after Mary, they start coming after Sherlock. And one day, someone pulls a gun on Sherlock. And as the gun gets pulled out, Mary thinks to herself, well, unless I deal with this now, Sherlock will never be free. Unless I deal with this now, Sherlock will never be free. And so she jumps in front of the gun, takes the bullet on Sherlock's behalf. Sherlock walks alive and free away, and Mary's gone. Now, for all the theologians in the room, before I give you this like one liner that's beautiful, all analogies break down. But Sherlock was reflecting with John Watson in a later conversation, asking for John's forgiveness that his wife is now dead because of Sherlock, basically. And, Sh- and John Watson forgives Sherlock, and then Sherlock has this reflection. It'll be on the screen. Sherlock said this about Mary, that in saving my life, she conferred a value on it. And it is a currency I do not know how to spend. Now, I'm a pastor. That's what I do. I love it. I love spending time with people. And one of the key questions I love when people ask me is this, Alex, what's the heart of Christianity? Like, how do I know if I'm a Christian? You know you're a Christian when you look at the cross of Jesus and you say, in dying and saving me, Jesus Christ conferred a value on my life. And I'm going to use the rest of my life to work out how to spend that value. That's the Christian life. In saving me, Jesus conferred a value on my life. And it's a currency I know not how to spend. Can you say that today? Here's the question I've got for each of us. Will you witness this love? Will you zoom your attention, your imagination onto the cross of Jesus? Not just the central symbol of Christianity. Not just something from history. But the heart of God's actions on your behalf. A lot of people think that um, evil is something that's divided between one group of people and another. So there's evil people over here, the ungodly, and the good people over here. It's actually that kind of thought process which has led to anti-Semitism, actually, in the history of the church. Because people look at the story of Jesus, realize that he was crucified by the religious Jewish elite, and they use it as a story by which to make sense of ungodly people and godly people. That's not the Christian story. Here's what Paul's saying. He's not saying that there's an ungodly group of people in the first century that Christ died because of, at the hands of. He's saying all of us are ungodly and Christ died instead of us. Do you see that? There's not a random group of people out there that Christ died at the hands of. There's a ragtag bunch of humans all around the world that God died instead of, so that we might have life here, now to the full, and life eternal. John Stott says this. It'll be on the screen. When we look at the cross, we see the justice, love, wisdom, and power of God. It's not easy to decide which is the most luminously revealed, whether the justice of God in judging sin or the love of God in bearing the judgment in our place or the wisdom of God in perfectly combining the two or the power of God in saving those who believe. Now, a synonym for that word belief is receive. Everything's been done. The table's been set. God has finished his work in the flesh of Jesus Christ. It's all done. The question is, will you receive that? And so I thought we might just take a moment right now just to pray for those who don't know Jesus. 
If you're here this afternoon, you've never heard this story before, never responded in faith and obedience and stuck your hand up, prayed a prayer and joined the family of God, I just want to invite you to be able to do that with me. And so to do that, I just want to invite us, can we close our eyes as a church? And with every eye closed and every head bowed, I just invite you, if you don't know Jesus, invite him into your life right now. And that just looks like praying a simple prayer. It's not magical. It's not a silver bullet. But it will kickstart a conversation which will give way to a life that we call discipleship. And so this prayer is really simple. God, thank you for dying for me. Sorry for living my life without you. And please help me follow you. So if you'd like to pray that prayer, I just invite you. With every eye closed, every head bowed, would you just raise your hand so I can see you and pray along with you as you join me? If that's you, please, raise your hand. That would be wonderful. And if you feel uncomfortable doing that, just put your hands out in front of you with your palms open to the heavens as an act of surrender and submission. And if that's not you and you're a Christian and your heart feels calloused and you're like, man, it's Easter already, I feel like I haven't prepared my heart for this beautiful day, now's the moment. I just invite you. Join me in this prayer. God, thank you so much for Jesus, for his life and for his death on my behalf, in my place. Sorry for the way that I've approached Easter, perhaps without a heart tender towards you. And God, I pray, please minister to me. Come into my life afresh right now in this moment and help me think and love and follow Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. 